This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to A Deeper Look here on Federal News Network. Each episode, we focus on a single federal agency to better understand its mission, its impact on the public, and the people who work here. Now your host, Joe Paiva. We're here today with Jason Nelson from the Transportation Security Administration. Jason, it's great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Hey, so just to get started, everyone probably thinks they know what the TSA does, but why don't you give us just a little overview of the TSA as an organization, just to kind of ground us all out to where we're at and what we're talking about when we say the TSA. Well, we're the most famous is for the airport screeners, you know, the people in the blue shirts that we get into the airport to travel and have to take our shoes off and, and put our uh, bags through the screeners and, and all keeping us safe from any uh, threats in the air. TSA is mostly that. That's pretty much the primary operation that we do. Uh, the part that a lot of people don't realize is uh, TSA is also a regulatory agency, coming up with the policies, regulations, and the oversight of security, not just in airports. We also do surface uh, pipelines and rail. Kind of the spinoff where it originally started in Department of Transportation, spun off to where it is in Homeland Security now after 9-11. A lot of those practices are still in place. TSA also has a law enforcement arm with two, with two different areas, including the federal air marshals, which we have thousands of employees that are uh, undercover flying on flights uh, anywhere around the world and within the United States to make sure that we don't have any terrorist activity like we've had in the past and keeping people safe. We also have an investigations arm, which does criminal investigations, both uh, internally and externally to TSA, who are also uh, law enforcement. So between that and the compliance officers, our inspectors and canine units, there's a lot more presence uh, both inside the airport and out that a lot of people are probably not aware of. Yeah, interesting. We have to come back to some of that, like the rail and the pipeline stuff is kind of interesting, right? Maybe if we don't hit that in the show tonight, maybe we can talk about it some more on the uh, on the on the actual article. Oh, of course. But hey, so so you have all this stuff going on. You have the stuff we all know about, as you say, the blue shirters doing the inspections in the, in the airport. You got the rail, the pipeline, the air marshals, the investigations. So. Personally, I see the value in all that, right? I like being safe on the airplane. But mm-hmm. every agency of the federal government has its detractors. So I'm going to sure. give you the same question I give everyone who comes on a deeper look, right, which is this is taxpayer shark tank. Mm-hmm. And you have three minutes or however long you need. But, you know, justify to American taxpayers why we should continue to fund the TSA every year, why we can't outsource it, why we can't do something different. Why Why do I fund the TSA? Well, the part about that is federal government federalized the airports after 9-11. I uh, was able to you know, reel in both the regulations and the operation to make sure we didn't have a repeat. It really was what spawned all of this. And we're 22, 23 years in now. And interesting enough, uh, federal government has a lot of uh, dollars and investment to make the process better for our, our public and the flying. Uh, new technologies coming out. And a lot of new ways to try to streamline and make this a lot easier. Um, federal government has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in detection capability in both the CAT scan uh, technology as well as the, uh, the prior X-ray. And those investment dollars are, are now starting to roll out into airports. And you'll start to see the way that we can make the process a lot better and smoother and easier on the flying public. Um, so a lot of people going into airports now see some of this. Um, Depending on the technology that's been rolled out and some of the newer machines, you don't have to take your shoes off anymore. 
for TSA PreCheck, for example, which is something we offer that people can get known into our system, get registered, and then we keep constant circulation and looking at the people that have been uh, in the system. And if they're already known to us and clear, you have a lot easier streamlined approaches to get through at some of the benefits which the government can offer, uh, as well as things like the technology allows now that you don't have to take your laptops out of the bag and things like that. So over time, in the last 20 years, a lot of the experiences we've had have been able to uh, develop a lot better of a process. The federal government that employs, and we have 48,000 uh, screeners that are out there out of our 62,000 employees. And these are very uh, highly trained, well-versed, uh, very passionate people that go to work every day, you know, when it's raining and it's snowing and it's three o'clock in the morning and on holidays and on weekends. And we have a very, very dedicated uh, force here that uh, that does keep both the flying public uh, safe as well as other means, like I said, outside the airport more than we're known for. One of the things um, that we do and people ask, you know, can you contract this out? Can you give it to private industry? I mean, we just look at it as the fact that we about 2 million people a day that we screen through airports, over 249 million already this calendar year since uh, since January. So it's a very large uh, operation. It's um, Sometimes you think of it when you go into an airport, you see there's a smaller airport, a handful of people, a larger airport, you see some, but the, the magnitude of what we do and the size and the scope and the consistency of the process is uh, very much something that uh, we take pride in the work that we do there. And uh, it is a lot of things that are not out in the public, except for what you see in the news, but we uh, do successfully stop uh, quite a bit. Um, we have uh, our screeners, our canine handlers, and the explosive specialists, and you see like a couple weeks ago on the news, there was uh, an explosive found in a bag uh, in Pennsylvania that one of our opera, uh, officers detected, stopping probably a massive catastrophe of things like we've seen in the past. And just uh, this past week in Richmond Airport, one of our, uh, actually two of our officers, there was a pilot that was coming through, getting uh, checked in and, and they noticed he wasn't looking right and ended up having a heart attack. And two of the officers jumped in, got the defibrillator and saved his life and so there's a lot of other things that go on, a lot of really good stories that uh, the, the, the passionate people of the government that do this really do a very, very good job. And a lot of times they don't get a lot of the credit for it because of the things that people see. So, you know, outsourcing that, you know, I don't really know. Uh, but the operation we have, it's working, is working extremely well. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we explain it. You know, I come back from an IT background, right? Mm -hmm. It sounds a little bit like cloud computing, right? Like if, right. if, if every single person had their own data center, none of them would be secure, right? Very good analogy. Yep. Yeah, no, I, that actually makes a lot of sense to me the way you describe it. The economies of scale increase the quality, not just the ROI, but, but the quality of the personnel, the quality of the equipment, the training, the R&D. And then you can also look into some of the things that are public, like there are some airports that have been privatized over the years. Uh, we actually do private sector airports as well, not just the public ones. So there's a lot of data and a lot of research where you can see where a lot of times the federal operations are more efficient and effective. There are some airports that have converted you know, from private into federalized that we see over the course of the years. And originally, all the airports were contracted out and privatized and have become federalized over the years. So there's a, there's a lot of success stories out there that probably aren't getting out in the public like they should. It's good to know the money is well spent and that we're safe in the air, right? Yep, and on the ground. <laughs> and on the ground, yeah, yeah. I still, still do need to come back. Yep. Well, let's just – so, hey, since we're there, we have mm -hmm. a minute. It can't spend too much time here, but okay. rail sure. and pipeline is certainly in the news these days, right. right? So what exactly is the TSA's role with the rail and the pipeline? 
So it's interesting, as you know, the Department of Transportation, uh, where I used to work, is uh, responsible for the regulations and the safety of all that. And TSA's angle of that is about the personnel. You know, check like we do with airports is checking the people that are there supposed to be there, and uh, make sure that the right people are in the right place with the right clearances. So it's the same concept in terms of our uh, our mission is to do that is really keeping people where they need to be and keeping things out that shouldn't be there. Well, that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it's very much like the airplane then, kind of like the, the airline makes sure the plane works and the FAA right. regulates all that. And you guys just make sure the wrong people don't get on the plane, right? And the wrong items that and are the, prohibited. Yeah, that and makes the, sense. And you see that a lot. It, was, it comes up in the news every now and then. You know, Even just uh, this week, I was saw that there was a story in the news about someone had bought a, uh, uh, it was a straw, you know, like a drinking straw, but it was also marketed as uh, a, a self-defense weapon that had a blade in it. And it looks like a straw, feels like a straw, but it's actually you know, a defense item. And it can be confused on an X-ray or some type of detection. And one of our officers found it and had it removed as well. And the people think of, oh, it's just a little straw with a blade. But if we remember, you know, at 9-11, the, the way that the airplanes were taken over was with you know, small box cutters. So we take it very seriously, even for something small like that. So it's about the objects, too, not just the people. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Well, yeah, I'm a career soldier, right? Yeah, right so yeah. The right metal straw could definitely be a weapon in the right absolutely. hands, without a doubt. Hey, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit, sure. and, and, and not, not too big a shift just yet. But, you know, one of the joys of, of the way we're set up as a country is like, you know, we have checks and balances in place to make sure the mission of the TSA stays intact. The core, the core way it operates right. doesn't change at the whim of any particular, you know, undersecretary or assistant secretary, Right. But the priorities change, right? The how we how we implement changes. And so as you've seen these priorities shift, I guess my first question is, what are the priorities today? Right? As an organization, what is TSA really focused on? Because, you know, the world changes. I mean, when I say – I don't mean to sound pejorative in saying things right. change. I mean, things change because the world changes, right? So – and you have to change with it. So what does that look like in the TSA right now? Well, the important part about staying ahead of this is staying ahead of – of the bad guys, right? People are always coming up with new creative ways to do things and cause harm. So one of the things that I didn't quite mention in detail in the beginning about TSA is we also have a lot of uh, counterintelligence people on staff. We have uh, scientists that are in labs and keeping up with the type of explosives or type of things that people are also out there playing with, make sure that they we can detect and get things kept out of the places they shouldn't be. So uh, the priority is always to do that, is to stay current and also working with our other partners in the, across the government to keep the communication lines open and making sure that everything is as smooth and safe as can be. So the priority really is keeping current, also keeping up our technologies. Now, one of the things that we do know, taught, you know with the flying public and the taxpayers, you know, we know that people when go to the airport want to get on their planes. They want to get where they want to go. And you know, flying right now is not the, you know, in the best form for a lot of people. It's been a, ever since pandemic. The airports are busy. The planes are crowded. There's delays. We have system issues across some of the airlines you read in the, in the paper. So one of the things that happens is we're trying also, when people get to the airport, to keep them calm. Maybe not happy, but you know, calmer. They get through the clear. It's not fun to go through TSA security. I go through it. Nobody loves that, right? But the idea is to get people through there as efficiently and safely as possible and get them out so they're at least calm, not excited, not upset, you know, uh, just to, part of that process is to keep people getting on the planes and behaving. You know, we see reading the news a lot that there are people that have 
uh, they drink some alcohol or they're angry or something, they start attacking flight attendants or getting disruptive with other passengers. So one of the things we focus on, you know, you don't read about a lot is, you know, trying to prevent a lot of that. You know, because the, the flying starts really when you get to the parking garage, then you see TSA get through security, you're, you know, after you've checked in, check your bags. And all of those elements can lead up to, you know, some of the things that we're trying to, you know, prevent. Uh, the other thing, too, is TSA has spent a lot of time in working with Congress and with our administrator about taking care of our people. So we're very, very excited and proud about it. It took a number of years, but uh, we're just putting in a new pay plan, a uh, new pay system uh, on July 1st. And one of the things we're trying to do is to, when we have highly passionate employees that have a, a tough job, they're on their feet, you know, the hour's not always there. They're, we have uh, a lot of people that are in different situations in life and different economic levels. So we wanted to make sure that we were able to pay them equally. You know, dollar for dollar uh, with our pay system in the past wasn't the same as other agencies. It's because we're not a GS, general schedule agency, uh, or a pay banded agency, which has a different pay structure. It wasn't the same. So we finally got this through. We're very fortunate. It went through uh, the last appropriations bill to be able to get us a new pay plan that looks a lot like the GS system, works like the GS system, and has the same uh, minimum salary. So now we're going to be more competitive. So our number one priority right now was to take care of our workforce, you know, make sure we're taking care of the hardworking people that have you know, real patriotism joining us after 9-11 and through today uh, when we stood up to just really want to keep every Americans safe and also non-Americans you know, leaving the country. So the pay was focusing internally as well. We're looking at our making sure we hire people, retain them, and all those things in the HR world that I'm in, I've been tasked to make sure we're taking care of people. So it's taking care of the public, but also taking care of our own in addition um, to keeping uh, up to date on all the threats. Well, so that's a, that's a great lead into our next question. But you know what? I'm going to take a quick break here to pay the bills. Okay. And <laughs> we'll be back just after this break with uh, Jason Nelson from the Transportation Security Administration. And we'll be back in a minute. And we're back. This is A Deeper Look with Joe Paiva, and I'm talking today with Jason Nelson, the Chief Human Capital Officer from the Transportation Security Administration. And Jason, before we left, um, thanks again for, ha- for being here today. Before, before we left for break, um, you had kind of gone through uh, an overview of the different parts of TSA, why TSA is so important, the advantages of TSA and the success of, of this over the last 20 years. And we had just started getting into priorities and you were talking about big priorities are kind of keeping current, keeping up with the threat mm-hmm. and also the people, right? Because at the end of the day, it's a people-driven organization, right? So that's kind of a good segue into what is TSA doing to help, I mean, you're a relatively new organization, so you don't have to, it's not like you have people who have been there for 30 years and mm-hmm. you're changing the way this, you guys have been evolving pretty much the whole time you've been here, right? right I mean, you absolutely. stood up 20 years ago, you've been evolving nonstop for 22 years, right? But, but what about, how are you helping people deal with that evolution? Like, what are you doing to kind of bring the workers, it's one thing you talk about bringing in new people, but what are you doing to help the people that are there kind of evolve personally and professionally, you know, further their careers as the world around them and the world within the TSA changes just as fast as the world just changes today. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of different uh, things to talk about. And one of which that's ex- 
that I'm really excited about is I have a colleague and counterpart that runs the training and development organization um, within TSA. So in, in a many, I wouldn't say, could say most, many federal agencies, you know, training and development falls under HR. And it makes logical sense for professional development of staff. With a large number of staff that we have, with the level of training that's required and the certification that we do uh, for those officers to be deployed as well as stay current is a whole nother enterprise. It's an entire another organization with a very large catalog of courses and facilities. And we're actually opening a new facility this year to handle the volume. Uh, so my counterparts in the train development world are spend all of that time when we bring the people in to keep get them trained, certified, deployed, and current. And we also partner with uh, the, the Fletzi Agency in DHS, which is the Federal Law Enforcement Training Centers. And we do send our uh, staff there to stay current. And they have, uh, we have access in, to a lot of the, you know, the current uh, trends and the current technologies and all of that we go through to keep people current and fresh, which is really a wonderful thing, the investment that uh, TSA puts in the people ongoing. Uh, not only that for career development and professional development, but also, you know, to keep people safe really is ultimately the end mission. The other part of that is what we do is we are an, an entry-level type of position when you get in on the uh, on the screener side. So TSA has 48,000 screeners, the blue shirt people in the airport, 62,000 overall employees. So what happens is the bulk of our hiring, we hire about 10,000 people per year, roughly, and it keeps us busy in HR, I can tell you that, as well as the hiring managers out across the country. Those uh, people come in at, it's an entry level, it's like the equivalent of like a GS5, we call it our D-band, where people are coming in. So we're recruiting from people you know, out of high school, we're recruiting people that are out of college. We get a lot of retired military, we get retirees in general, they're just looking to get back into the workforce and maybe they were a high ranking officer in the military or a C-level person or a vice president in a company like, I just want something to do, want to work, you know, uh, dedicate some service to the country and not have to run everything and have everyone rely on me. So we have people coming in from all different levels in their career, and that gives unbelievable opportunities for the staff. So for the people that um, are younger, it's very, like out of high school or out of college, one of the things that I've heard in my days as a HR executive across the government, a lot of the complaints that we get uh, from applicants is it's very difficult to get into the federal government. There's a lot of hurdles. There's a lot of competition. There are a lot of laws and regulations that prevent a person from walking in the door and getting a job. You know, a lot of times I hear my, my son's a junior in college, and he's been trying to get an internship, and he keeps saying, am I ever going to hear back from USA Jobs? I feel like it's a black hole. I'm like, there's so many people applying, thousands and thousands of people, and there's only so many positions. And also there's a lot of rules, like, you know, disabled veterans get first you know, pick of the jobs when they're qualified. And the rest of the public has to wait till they're hired. So there's a lot of frustration. The nice part about TSA when we have a younger generation is we hire more people than we have like veterans applying for or others that will be claiming the position if they have rights to it. So we can get people in the government a lot easier than most agencies. So what that means is that we have so many openings that we can hire basically everybody coming through the door. And it's a real good gateway or entryway into a federal career and a lot of people don't think of TSA that way. They think of it as like, oh, it's a job. It's an hourly job. It's like working at McDonald's. But actually, it's a gateway to a career. So it's easier to get in. And then for the people that are maybe older, retiring from a different organization, they can come back into a job like this, and they can either look for a leadership type of role because there's a career path there, or they can say, you know what? I don't want to lead anything formally, but I'll come in, 
start at one of these lower, you know, graded or banded jobs and do my job and help some other people and share some of my experience or just be a good employee. And we give people a chance to have a rebirth on a second career if they're interested in it. It really varies on, on the people. And the career paths that we have, as I mentioned before, a lot of people don't realize it. They think, oh, I'm coming to TSA, I'm going to be a uniform officer for the rest of my career, and then I'll just go somewhere else where I have no movement or opportunity. And that's actually quite the contrary. Uh, with our career progression that we have, there are a lot of people that move into these other areas of TSA, into you know, the canine handlers or inspectors or air marshals, or they get into the professional series, the other 14,000 positions we have like IT, cybersecurity, financial, accounting, HR. The nice part about the federal government is most of those jobs do not require a college degree, including my own in HR. I mean, I have graduate degrees and all of that fun stuff, but it's not required. It's experience-based. So there is lots and lots of opportunities for someone to come right out of high school or in high school as an intern. They can stay and have a very full career that's very rewarding. It's good federal service. It's a good, great mission. But I walk around the building and headquarters here in Springfield, Virginia. I, I go airport tours. And there's so many people that I run into. It seems more than not. They're like, oh, I started as a TSO screener in 2002 or three. Like I said, 20 years ago. They're like, now I'm the executive over X office. Or I'm a senior leader in this. Or I'm staying in middle management where I want to be. But I was a screener and now I got a desk job. You know, I have a staff of 30 people and we do whatever we do. And it's a really interesting path for people to come through. And I think that we get overlooked a lot because you think of it as like, you know, hourly worker you know, type of job or blue collar style job, like equivalent to a fast food place. But it's a really interesting place to come to. And again, with 62,000 people, we have one of the, we're larger than many even cabinet level agencies. <laughs> so there's so much opportunity for people. It's really wonderful. Yeah, that is. I mean, that that it's funny. I all these years I never thought of it that way. You yeah. know, and I I have former veterans come to me all the time looking for ways to get into the federal government. And until this very moment, yeah. it never occurred to me that TSA was a great place to go. And and yeah. young people are not veterans. I talk to them too, right? It never occurred to they me. It's, to it's a great, it's a great great way to get in because it's much harder to get. One of the security officer jobs at at VA is much more difficult to get. I think. I think most of the jobs, like you know, the the, the park ranger jobs at the national park, are, are pretty highly sought after. Right? I mean, not I, as not as many openings. Yeah, not as many openings. Yeah, because because yeah, forty three thousand people. Is that did I write that number? Yeah, forty eight. Forty eight thousand people. Positions. Yeah, because I think the largest police force in the country is like New York City with like about forty seven thousand. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's similar. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of um, yeah. It's really interesting when you when you break it down and think of it that way and. And the fact that uh, we also are part of the Department of Homeland Security, so on a larger perspective. So I'm a chief human capital officer of TSA, but I have counterparts in every one of our subcomponents, as well as the DHS chief human capital officer. And we talk about these things. We talk about these are Homeland Security employees. You know, they're not t only TSA employees. And we talk about career progression across the different components and looking at ways to tap into this talent that we have and these talent pools of people that move up, want to move up, coming in with other skills, military people coming in, highly skilled, highly trained people that can navigate through and move up a career into other areas across the whole department and the federal government, right? So the way we look at it is, is we train and develop people to invest. The military trains and invests in people. We invest in the, on the civilian side in our staff. It benefits the federal government and the American people wherever they're working. So oftentimes we just want to keep them in the government. So if, if that means, you know, moving up to another 
department or another agency outside of DHS is not something we prefer, obviously, <laughs> but it's something we would endorse because it's good for the overall uh, federal workforce. So we in the, in the human capital officer realm, we talk about these things a lot and trying to strategize ways, of, you know, you, how do you make this the best place to work? How do you retain people, take care of them? How do you get them to come and stay and have a very long, fruitful career? Uh, one of the things that I'll just give a plug for TSA too is we decided as an agency because of these, we typically uh, talk, not we offer positions in areas that are typically underserved. Um, it's naturally fitting because we have 400 airports around the country and also around the world. We that's a lot more than the NFL. Team. Yeah, a lot more than the NFL. So we have presence internationally as well. So we do con consultations and helping and assisting other countries. So there's just a lot of opportunity. But what that means is that many times the airport might be the best employer around. We might be one of the only employers around. You know, there might be the you know, Amazons of the world or you might have, you know, fast food or UPS, but we're there. And a lot of times we're able to give people an opportunity to work in a government job they couldn't get somewhere else or wouldn't have the ability to relocate to D.C. or another large federal prison area. So we've taken pride in our recruitment events when we go out working with local military bases, uh, trade schools, high schools, and the fed uh, federal security directors at each airport for ATSA that run them are constantly telling me the stories about the success they get in partnering with local uh, advocacy groups, affinity groups, you know, professional organizations, and giving people opportunities to get a job that wouldn't have one before. And they really love doing hiring the local people. And the other part that's interesting is that we offer part uh, benefits, health benefits and others to part-time employees, which a lot of other agencies oh, wow. and companies don't. So we find that we have a lot of single mothers that we're able to employ with single fathers. We have people that are working, you know, these probably jobs, similar type of income, but don't have the federal scope. You know, our bargaining power of OPM with our benefits is pretty spectacular. I was to say healthcare for part-time employees. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, yeah. I've spent a lot of time in commercial industry and because of the nature of my job, I've worked I've insight into a yeah. lot of hundreds of private companies and I, I assure you that that's not a common practice. It's not right? typical. That, that, that'd be very difficult to find a part-time job with with healthcare benefits anywhere in private industry. Yes, right yeah, now. and we did that because, like I said, a lot of the people that we are serving can typically have the need, you know. Um, and a lot. Also, the nice part about having our twenty-four hour operation in a lot of locations and first, second, third shifts and things, we're able to have people swap shifts and line it up. So we have. I've heard stories walking around airports of single parents that line up their shifts so that they can take each other's kids. So like you work cool. the morning shift, I'll work the afternoon, you know, the person, our neighbor will work at night and they rotate around. They don't have to get daycare anymore, which saves them, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year. So that with the benefits in this type of environment with a flexible schedule, you know, many agencies are, you know, traditional nine to five. I mean, I know we don't do that work anymore, but standard in office nine to five where we have a lot of more flexibility. And we do a lot of shift bidding and swapping and changing where we let the employees could really work things out to get a better work-life balance for themselves. So we take a lot of pride in that, you know, in taking care of people. And the benefits part is really nice. When I get out there and the people come up to us and thank us and say, you know, you've given us this opportunity. I have a child with an illness. I couldn't get health care. I couldn't afford it out of pocket, even with the, you know, the market you know, plans and things. But now it's subsidized as part of my job. And it's really, uh, they're really nice stories. Well, that's great. Well, yeah. you know, so that's a great lead-in, right? So, so you mentioned the rural piece, and, and obviously when we talk about underserved communities in the United States, 
you know, a big chunk of the country is rural, and that is mm-hmm. a big underserved market, as it is in many other countries as well, right? And then we have the more traditionally underserved markets, you know, they include, you know, everything from women and minorities to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, gender sure. nonconforming and, and, and everything else, right? And, and, and so there are, unfortunately, the history of our country is one that, that, that has a, a number of these groups of people who have just not been fully served for a very long time, right? right. And so I get to this point in every interview where I have to ask about DEINA, right? And, and, you know, there's just a lot of historical reasons why the government doesn't look like the population of the United States, right? And and we're now making some efforts to fix that, right. you know, both in terms of, like I said, rural Americans and, and other underserved communities. So do you want to, before we break, I don't want to break your answer in two, but <laughs> okay, I know we got fine. a break coming right. and I know this is an important question, but do you want to kind of just start now and then we'll take a break and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about DE and I, but sure. just give us like your first salvo, if you will, in this conversation. Well, I'll say that I've uh, been in the government, uh, worked 30 years, I was half in the private sector and half now in the public sector where I joined in 2008. And since the beginning, I'm very passionate about this and I typically will either lead or serve on any type of councils that are involved. I mean, when I first started the government, it was you know, diversity and inclusion was the big, and engagement was the big uh, push. And it's now this DEIA, which has expanded that out to equity and accessibility. So I still stay very much involved and sleep on the pulse. I'm actually on the DEIA council uh, personally. Uh, we do have a full-time uh, executive DEIA officer uh, that is driving a whole um, strategic plan that our administrator is uh, supporting. And it has a number of goals and initiatives and things that we're looking to do. And it's certainly not just measuring. It's not, you know, X amount of this, Y amount of that, and go out there and make these happen. We're actually looking to infuse the behavior and the culture throughout the organization and every business practice that we do. And looking at this as a strategic means to not only look like the workforce, that uh, the civilian force that we support, but also looking at a more balanced team. You know, just the most base example is, you know, when you come through a security checkpoint, there is a potential you have to have a pat down. So we're making sure just on the base level of having enough people that can support all the different genders um, and making sure that people feel comfortable and they can, have, you know, asking, I have a preference to have a pat down by this person or that person in privacy rooms and things. So we're constantly thinking about the workforce. Do we have enough on staff to make sure that people can feel comfortable as a base level? All the way through up, uh, the organization of do the teams of employees we have everywhere have what they need? Are they balanced to get the mission done? And that can be anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be X gender, Y of race, or this of national origin. We also look at you know diversity of thought, education levels, experience levels. And I know personally when I hire, I take a look at my team and talk to my team. I'm like, we're doing a lot of great work. What are we missing? And somebody may say, we're going out to recruitment events, out to colleges. And the people that tend to go are more senior in the government or have more experience. Oftentimes, college students like to speak to people that are more in their own language, you know, their own culture. I'm like, wow, we don't have enough of, you know, a younger generation. Let's see if we can get someone on the recruitment staff or recruit internally or to hire someone that's in a different generation so that they go out there and they can have a much better representation of the group we're targeting. So we're trying to get all of our leaders and all of our supervisors to think that way. If you're in a community somewhere where one of these airports are, 
you know, what does it look like out there? What does your clientele look like? Will people feel comfortable? Do we have enough representation of anything, whatever they may be, so that it's, you know, not the big bad TSA, you know, coming down on people. It's more like we're part of the community. We're one of you. We're here. You know, we're here to keep everyone safe. We're here for input, here for ideas and trying to weave that throughout the culture so that it's not just an exercise, you know, to check a box or run a report, but it's actually a way of thinking and change our culture. Well, that's awesome. So with that, we'll take a quick break. This is Joe Paiva on a deeper look at the TSA with Jason Nelson, Chief Human Capital Officer. And we'll be back in a minute. And we're back with Jason Nelson, the Chief Human Capital Officer of the Transportation Security Administration. Jason, before we broke, you just started to talk about some of the some of the work that TSA is doing with diversity. You mentioned that you know there is a DEIA executive uh, and an agency plan, and you know it's really not about the numbers. It's it's about infusing the behavior and the culture mm-hmm. necessary. And also about making sure that, you know, you have the right diversity of thought and the right diversity of, of everything on the team to really make it not just match the people you serve, but also to get the job done, right? More, more importantly, Absolutely. to get the job done, right? And that, that kind of aligns with what I've seen in commercial industry, right? So I was with an HR software company and, you know, like more than half of the of the Fortune 500 use their software. And, and, and I'm convinced they did not wake up one day and all these Fortune 500 companies did not do it. Because, you know, they suddenly felt like they needed to do something better for the world, right? They didn't. Right. Some of these guys are not the kind that, you know, wake up believing in unicorns and want to do the right thing, right? <laughs> sure. they, they're, they're, they're hardcore executives that woke up one day and realized that companies with more diverse workforces and more diverse leadership made more money and had better stock prices, right? right. And, 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 you know, and that plays out. We see that every time the Olympics play, right? And we see it every time the United States right. is in a war and we kick someone's butt, right? It, it, it just, that's the way it works, right? Right. So with that in mind, right, so, so you have the executive, you have the plan, you're inculcating the culture. I, I did notice that on your website, right, there are like a lot of – you're having a lot of events. You have like a whole webpage dedicated to all sure. these recruiting events. We do. Can you talk a little bit about – because we talked a little bit over lunch about how the fact that, you know, having all the right processes doesn't matter if you don't get the right people to apply for the job, right? right? So how about you tell us a little bit about that and some of the success you've had? Because you mentioned you've had some success in that in some parts of the organization already. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the thing is we we always try to have the right representation, you know, from leadership all the way down, as I mentioned, to service the public, to service our internal and external you know, customers. And internally, we are making big strides to try to diversify even from leadership down. Um, even in our law enforcement, you know, there was a big push in DHS, you know, of a 30 by 30 initiative, trying to get 30% women in the law enforcement uh, ranks uh, is our target goal. And in um, TSA, actually, we have uh, a female uh, executive overseeing our investigations division, which is you know, uh, a law enforcement you know, arm and badge type of position. And we have uh, 20% of their investigators are women, and one of the field offices is at 50%. So I don't like to use the metrics, you know, as a measure of success, but it just shows what we like to do is we had an initiative in 2012, the air marshal services that were trying to balance that out better to reflect the population. So um, in 2012, we had a, a panel of lim- women from every level of the organization to come up with recommendations. And there are a number of recommendations, eight of them stuck within the organization and actually spread outside the law enforcement area. 
that now is systematic across uh, TSA. And they did helping make it more comfortable for women to come in the workplace, such as uh, breastfeeding rooms, privacy rooms, more flexible schedules for, you know, uh, maternity leave and all that good stuff. Uh, that has actually paid dividends over time. So we like to use some of these metrics just to see how we're doing. And 24 months ago, 33% of our air marshal field leadership uh, were minorities and women. Uh, today, it's 50%, just two years later. So that just goes, shows you that a lot of the things that we're trying to do are, are paying some fruit, and we feel like that that's going to make us more successful. Uh, you mentioned that diverse workforces in the private sector can generate and you know, make more money, more profit. You know, it's interesting with the government, we're not a profit-driven organization, and actually more like a nonprofit where we have to spend all the money, which is hard, too, sometimes to get down to zero and not negative. So we have a different uh, challenge. It's more about just accomplishing the mission as opposed to making any money. And we're feeling that the more diverse and the more we have representation from different parts of society, the more successful our operation will be. Um, and, and operation, of course, is keeping everybody safe, you know, and, and, and especially in the local communities, like we mentioned earlier, we want our, our workforce to, to reflect the community so that people do feel more safe when they're coming through and, and can feel more trusting in us to make sure that it's done properly. Well, I mean, that totally makes sense, especially if you're talking to air marshals, right? Like, I mean, if I if I put SEAL Team 6 on every airplane, I'm sure there wouldn't be any problems. You're right. But I'm pretty sure the bad guys would know which airplanes had SEAL Team 6 on them, right? They, they would kind of – you would kind of notice out. them sitting in the back row, right? So yeah. <laughs> so I, th- I think, <laughs> I think you know, diversity is really important, right? Uh, just in all ways. And, and, yeah, the measures of success may be different. But I think the idea of, you know, whether it's gold medals or dollars on the bottom line or airplanes staying in the air, it's all, it's all, it's all the same thing, right? The better the, – the, a higher quality workforce, uh, a more diverse workforce will perform better and generate more yeah. success. Yeah, I mean our right? goal instead of making a profit is to make sure there's, there's no death that's preventable in the areas that we oversee. And, you know, it's – a lot of times people talk about, well – we're like the bass in the band, you know, that expression. Like, <laughs> no one ever knows the bass is there until it's gone, right? And like, well, something doesn't sound right, but I never really thought of it as important. TSA is one of those things that's like we do, you know, 200, 2 million people per day, every day, you know, 20, 365 days a year. And no one really notices or I get upset with us. You know, like you hear stories of someone, a bad experience happened like any customer service organization. Like it blows up all over social media. That one time, but then we also don't know that we haven't had a plane go down. We haven't had a hijacking, right? We, we just, the, the part of the success is we're keeping that to a minimum. And we want to make sure that our diverse and equal workforce is keeping to that mission. So if that, if you're doing diversity and inclusion to make, to meet some numbers, but it affects your mission or your outcome, that's not the point of that. The point of that is to do it the best you can in, in the most efficient way with the best representation. So that's why I'm saying is these metrics, we don't, we, some places look at the metrics and count as a way of measure of success. We're looking at our mission as the way of success and then also making sure the people are comfortable. So we want to make sure that we track our metrics to see how we're doing to make sure that we are in line with the uh, people we service. But it's also not the main driver. At the end of the day, we sleep better at night when we know that everyone getting off planes and railroad and you know, the pipelines and their bags and everything is safe. Well, that, that, that absolutely tracks, right? Yep. So <laughs> that double entendre there. Yeah. Hey, the, uh, <laughs> so let's go back to these because I started, we, I started to mention the, 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 I guess that's kind of the success of 
the events. Can you tell us a little bit about the the events themselves, right? Because I noticed they're all over they're all over the country. They seem to be just kind of give us a feel for like you know what that means for people who are looking for jobs at TSA. How do, how do these events play out? Where do they find them? Where do they? Why why would are they useful to go to? Like kind of I just noticed it's a big part of your recruiting oh, effort. So I want to kind of tell people more about. Oh, more about the recruitment. Yeah, definitely. So there. There's a couple different ways to get hired in the federal government, right? It's, it's essentially usajobs.gov is where, you know, the big portal where all of the job opportunities are listed. And people can certainly go put in their application, put in their resume, and, you know, hope to get a call. And there's, you know, millions of people that do that. So the experience that most people have is a waiting game of, am I going to get lucky this time to get a call? And that's one way to go about you know, making yourself available and one way to go for agencies to find people. The other way that we uh, agencies find people is by going out and actively recruiting. And you can do that lots of different ways. You can read through through mailings. You can go on LinkedIn. You can post things to social media. Uh, you can have, but a lot of places have events in person, online, virtual recruitment fairs. There's just so many different ways to engage. And what that does is agencies get out there, meet people, and then if they have to submit an application, then we send them to USA Jobs as a secondary step, not as a primary and uh, TSA has found a lot of success in getting out there and on the ground. Um, it depends on the area. Uh, in my staff, we do a lot of analytics about uh, return on investment. Here's some buzzwords, right? Some quarter buzzwords. <laughs> well, the uh, return on investment because we spend millions of dollars in advertising and events. And, and we want to make sure that they're fruitful and not a waste of time. And a lot of the analysis my staff does is they'll say, okay, we will learn for an area like in Boston, for example, where we had a major event that was very successful uh, last month for recruitment, that the advertising seems to work better on radio and like placards on buses and things like that, um, which in this day and age is kind of surprising. You know, that a lot of times we think it's the social media's way to go. We had just found when no, people No, no, no. Radio the is the way to go. Radio yeah, is the way to go. Radio. Plug the radio. <laughs> but you think that you hear about that, that radio is getting this antiquated. It's not really working anymore. But we're finding in that particular area, people walking in the door, like, hey, how'd you hear about the event? Oh, I heard it on the radio. Like, we collect that so that we see that we're making sure we're properly communicating to get the word out. So our events are in person. You come in. They have uh, people there to greet you, ask questions, show you around, uh, really just let people see what the environment is like. And we're trying the best that we can uh, to make job offers on the spot and hire people on the spot. But in government, federal government, wow. it's really hard. Wow, that's, that's, uh, pretty, that's pretty impressive. Trying. You're even trying, right? We are I mean, trying. Most of us are used to a 90-day hiring 90 cycle. Days, so right. that's, uh, on the spot is kind of incredible, right? Yeah, so a lot of agencies, not just TSA, that are trying to find ways within the hiring authorities that you can effectively do that and try to make this more like private sector. And we're making a lot of progress uh, in the federal government. And TSA is trying the thing. So TSA's uh, laws that created us also have some laws about how we hire. And we have to make sure that people um, can be deployed as a screener. It's a national security job. So it's a little harder. That, uh, but we're trying to figure out ways within the laws and certify people when they come in that they're able to be hired into this job. So we're being very creative uh, in the legal means to do that. And these events, we're trying out some different things to see how can we get somebody, you know, interviewed, selected, maybe walk out of there with a job, tentative job offer right away or within a couple of days so that someone's not hanging out and waiting forever. Like the experience that most agencies have, most applicants wait months. We said 90 days, you know. 
We're trying, and all of us, all agencies are doing that. So our events are really targeted to that. Or if anything, getting people there excited, see what we do, put that job application in so that when we call them back, they're already interested. And we're doing that all over the country. And we have uh, the local staff does a bang up job of, of dedicating people. They feel it's important to pull people off of the screening line to come out and help interview and talk to people. And we have uh, staff to do that. We've actually supported remotely. We send people out from around the country on these hiring events. And we have contractor support that come out and really make a big deal out of it. We, you know, we celebrate the job, welcome the people, and really encourage people to come in and say, come start here. This is a great place to start a career. You know, and uh, now with the new money, we're paying more, a lot more <laughs> than we were before. In some places, almost 26% increase. Um, wow, so it's fantastic. becoming more lucrative. And we also have these new... Um, career ladder so that when people come in, um, we actually are now showing what you're, if you have good performance and you do a good job, you show up to work, what your salary could be in the next four to five years. It's some areas, it's as much as a 67% increase um, that most other competitors at the private sector just can't guarantee that. And we have it now, you know, in our policies, you can see, and we're broadcasting it. So we're having a much nicer time right now recruiting and also retaining people. Uh, because we're finally able to pay what the right amount of money for the work that people have been doing. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. It really is. So, so we're gonna. Uh, I'm afraid I could. We could talk all day. This. So, <laughs> I know we have to wrap up. But I, I just for have sure. to ask this question, right? Because a lot of people, you know, we're talking about people coming to join TSA. There's the old marijuana thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, it's now legal in more and more states. It's still federally a crime. Uh, you are a federal law enforcement agency. Um, unfortunately, yeah, well, one, one <laughs> regulatory operation and law enforcement, right? Yeah. And so, and so I guess the, 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 let me just get to the question, right? We know that the problem with marijuana laws is they have been, uh, pretty unfairly and pretty inconsistently, you know, implemented and enforced across the country. And, and the, basically people in underserved communities have been, have been, you know, disproportionately unfairly treated by them. So, so how does that impact? I'm coming to work for TSA. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> the joke when I first got to my first wardroom on the ship during the Reagan years, right? It was Reagan had just come in, and we all got in the in the wardroom, and and, and all the officers looked at each other and said, "Well, 99% of our people our age have smoked marijuana at least once, and everyone in this room has sworn on a stack of Bibles they never did." Right. So. We're either a big pack of nerds or a big pack of liars, right? It was or not somewhere a, in between. Yeah, it was not a good situation, <laughs> right? Right. So, so how are you dealing with that, right? How did how does is someone coming in? I want to be a screener. I was in high school. I smoked marijuana. I was fourteen. I was sixteen. I was seventeen. It was two years ago. I'm now a twenty year old person. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore. I haven't done it in you know a year. What does that mean for me to become a TSA screener? So with all federal agencies, not just TSA, no matter what the local jurisdiction or states say about marijuana use, federal employees are not allowed to use it um, as of today. Uh, and it was, uh, I actually just sent out a reminder to the entire workforce about that. You know, just a reminder, more and more states and more and more localities are, are like that. The federal government still has not endorsed that in general. So it's not a TSA specific. Uh, my understanding is uh, all but two states have some semblance of legality now of marijuana. Um, and maybe when it goes to all 50 plus DC, maybe the federal government would look at that, but I, I haven't heard of anything like that. So it's currently right in imbalance, like you said. But I'm looking at the look back because right. you know at one point anywhere in DHS, if you had ever smoked marijuana six times in your life, 
that was it. You were done. You went to lie detector. If you had smoked marijuana six times in your life, you couldn't even apply for a job, even if it was 25 years ago. Right. So what, what, how does that work today? So how it works now is, and I, won't, I can't speak in general because every situation is different. What we do is when we go through our security clearances, we have a, a personal, personnel security office that does an analysis of everybody. And what we tell everybody is you tell the truth, you let the process take its course, and, mo- and most people that we see go through are adjudicated positively and able to get jobs. Um, I can't speak in general about somebody's past history of what we'll do about it. It does vary. I will tell you, though, that if you, we do uh, drug testing and random drug testing of, of employees coming in as an applicant and also as current employees. So you, obviously, if you fail the drug test as an applicant, it, well, that's fair, it, right? It's just not going to move on. Yeah, so, that's fair. But, you know, it was part of your history becomes part of your background clearance. But So that's all up for just evaluation. So, so someone's not automatically excluded because five years ago when they were 14 years old, they smoked a joint on the plate. I wouldn't make a generalized statement that anyone's automatically disqualified from anything. But the personal security does do their workups. So that's not in my area. So I hate to comment. No, that's right? fair. That's fair. But not trying to put you on the spot. It, would, it wouldn't be... I wouldn't be decisive either way. You go through the process. We encourage everyone with anything in a background, it can't hurt to apply. You know, we'll check it out. Um, the, um, the other thing, too, is we are a national security agency with our position. So there are a number of uh, substances that you can't take as an employee either. Um, and we do have medical reviews and things that we do sometimes have to move people to non-screener jobs if they're on certain, even prescribed medications, uh, because there, there's a, an element to that that on your feet and doing things. And part of our requirements, you have to be able to identify um, images in a CAT scan or an X-ray. And if people, you know, their vision requirements, color blind thing, there's a whole series of medical requirements and the uh, medicine and drug use does fall into that category. Makes sense. So it's possible if you're applying, you wouldn't be able to be qualified for a job for one of many reasons of something medical, including marijuana or other drug use. Like I said, I never speak in general because you just never know. And that's I just want to get it out there so people wouldn't be afraid to apply because I think a, a lot of people from like where I grew up might just just never apply because they just figure well, you know, when I was fifteen I, I did X Y and just Z. Just for right? my own, this is not me speaking as a human capital person. Just in general, what I've heard you know, from colleagues and friends is where people seem to trip up coming into the government when they lie about it. You know, so that it's really what will happen is say, well, I you know I, I I smoked a joint when I was fifteen. You're like, okay, but what was what was on your application for your security? And like, did you check the box? You've never done that. And then in an interview, they find out you did. That's a whole nother story. That, right. that becomes more of a candor issue than it does the usage of any substance. So it's one of those things, whatever you're doing, you're back or you tell the truth. You go in and you let personal cell security do their adjudication. And it's possible they may just say, whatever's in your past is fine with us. But I, I don't know that. You won't know that. All that <laughs> stuff happens and you get your notice and – we do have people that apply that get rejected for sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's criminal. There's a whole variety of things that would exclude you from a national security position, but it's not really focused on anything particular. Very good. So then we're going to take one quick break, but when I come okay. back, it's a personal question. Okay. So be ready for it. All right. <laughs> All right. This is Joe Piva with A Deeper Look, and we've been looking at the Transportation Security Administration with Chief Human Capital Officer Jason Nelson, and we'll be back in a minute. Hey, and we're back with Jason Nelson from the Transportation Security Administration. Jason, this is the end of our interview. 
Um, but before we go, right, uh, you know, you're a senior executive. There are uh, – you were you in private industry. There are mm-hmm. a lot of companies. I mean, 43,000 people, 48,000 people, that, that's a huge organization total, to yeah. be the – yeah, I mean, most companies mm-hmm. are much smaller than that, right? Booz Allen does not have 48,000 people, <laughs> right? So – so and and the chief information officer the, – the chief the – chief, you can tell where I come from, right? right. The, the chief human capital officer <laughs> for any of those companies is a pretty senior position. They would love to have a guy like you. You keep coming back to work at the TSA. There must be something about it that – that, that is the draw for you. There's something, there's a reason you do it and it's not because of the paycheck. So can you tell people your story, how you got here? Mm-hmm. Um, and more importantly, why you stay, what it is that makes you want to be part of the TSA? So it's interesting. So my story was, yeah, I was in private sector for the first 15 years of my career. I'm actually was born in New York, raised in New York. Uh, never thought I'd ever leave New York. Um, and ironically, there's an Alicia Keys song in there yeah, right. that, that I really like, right? <laughs> exactly. Keep going. Uh, which they play at Yankee Stadium, actually. Um, the ironically, how I ended up with ended up with TSA ultimately was the 9/11. I was in New York that day with my wife, li- working and living on an island, and we said, uh, "That's enough. Let's go move somewhere a little bit safer." And I was in IT at the time, like you know, you were from, and the IT in, in 2001 was a pretty tough hit. Not a lot of jobs. I was looking around central part of the country, try to get out of the coast and things, and ended up in the D.C. area, which is not completely less of a target. Uh, but at least I'm not living on working on an island. And ended up uh, getting a federal contract job because that's you know, federal government, you know, good or bad parts of the economy, they're always operational, so they're always hiring. And I got a job um, as. Uh, in the IT field and systems and training and HR, so building out learning management systems, financial systems and things, and ended up getting hired by my client to come over into our HR to start a learning management system in an HR academy uh, with my uh, training background in IT. So set that up and, and I really started liking HR a lot and just kind of fell into it. And 15 years later now, went from IT to the chief human capital officer. It's an interesting journey. Um, but I went through all of that and when I was moved to DC, from New York, my wife was pregnant with our first child, and I was still in the private sector, and I was thinking, you know, um, my family's going to come first. I was really looking for something with work-life balance and something very meaningful and contribute back to, you know, uh, the country. And I was like, well, you know, federal jobs really have an impact. And I said, and also, you know, we have uh, the work-life balance in the government's very, very good. You know, like when I was a private sector person, you do your regular job and then you have to do business, you know, development, all those other things, which is, which is wonderful. I enjoyed it for many years, but when I had my kids, I was like, I want to be home more. So I took that and I've started realizing this is a really good place for me to grow a career, grow a family and just grow as a person. And so I've been in the government since and don't plan on leaving it until I retire. Um, you know, they very well could potentially, you know, be called by a headhunter and try to go to a company. You know, I don't know what'll happen. I can't predict the future. But the thing I love about TSA is, first of all, the people are on. I've been in, I've worked for a couple different agencies, and this has been the most friendliest, most caring, most energetic group of people I've seen. I just hired a couple of people to join me in, in my plight here to, to work in TSA. And they said to me after the first day, they're like, people here are so nice, and the environment's so good. They're so welcoming. Like, what I like about it is that people just, they're, a lot of them, they're not, you know, a lot of them are start coming from all over the country all different backgrounds, educational levels, different experience, different languages they speak. 
different cultures, and they they just kind of love what they do, and everybody's so passionate about what we do. They don't get caught up in the well. You have a doctorate degree, and you don't, or there's you just and it, you don't see a lot of that. Everybody's just working towards keeping everybody safe, and and they've been very kind to me when I came here. I try to be as kind as I can to everybody else and supportive. And I come in every day, and people they thank you for what you do. They recognize what you do with how we make a difference. When I travel around to the airports, you know, they're like, oh, here comes some headquarters guy, you know, Mr. You know, Chief Human Capital Officer. They're, they're happy to see you. They take pictures of you there. They sit. We tell stories. They tell me about their families, and they email pictures of their dogs, and I meet the canines in the airport, and I'm a big dog lover, so they know that. So they bring the dogs out. We get to throw, you know, throw the ball with them and play with them. It's just it's, – it's got such a great environment and you can see the people really care about each other. And when I watch stories about the things you see on TV that are really real, that, you know, the officers that work in the airports, their job is to screen and keep people safe. But I watch them. They go and do other things. You know, they support the other employees that work there. They help the airline employees get through the lines. And they keep people calm. They save people's lives. And it's just, it's just such an unbelievable environment. And it keeps me going every single day. And, you know, it's also nice not to have to churn out a quarterly profit, you know, <laughs> every every 90 days anymore. It's just a nice, instead of focusing on a bottom line and everything being about, you know, generating more money, we're more about keeping people safe. And I kind of like that. And it's, I did the business. I can do it again. It's wonderful. It's just, it's a different way of looking at, at what we do. We're not really a, a profit center. We're not really an expense center. We just have a mission, go out there and do it. And we do it, you know, and, we're fortunate to get funded every year, and as long as Congress keeps funding us, we'll keep going, and and we just love what we do. And it's a really, it's a really, it's interesting that uh, they go through these best places of work in this season, all these things, and this is one of the best ones I've worked for, but it's not like at the top of the list, and I can't figure that out because people are so happy. Well, that's a that is a great that is a great note to finish on. Yeah. Um, this has been uh, Jason Nelson, the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Transportation Safety Administration, uh, speaking with me, Joe Piva, the host of A Deeper Look, as we've looked at the TSA and, and learned a little bit more about it. Jason, thank you for coming today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This was fun. Well, good. Appreciate we'll have to it. do it again. All right. All right. Thanks.